our scripture lesson for today. Uh, it's going to be a little bit pokey. Um, it's going to poke us a little bit. It's going to push you. And that's a good thing because if uh, all the Bible ever does is affirm me or comfort me, I wonder if I'm reading it right, right? Uh, so that's going to be a good thing. It's, uh, we're going to be better off because of it. We're, we're continuing our, our sermon series, Lent for an Election Year, because uh, we're all excited about what's coming up in November. And that's not true, no. But, but it is an election year, and we can't do anything about that. So we're going to take we're taking some six weeks here to uh, think about what that what that means. I've titled today's sermon "The Church Political," and that's actually like a, a play on uh, words a little bit. In in theology class, they teach you about the church, and there's there's church exists in two modes, and, and traditionally we call it the church militant and the church triumphant. Fancy words. We don't talk quite that way anymore, but that's, that means there's a church militant, means those are the believers, those are the Christians. Remember, the church isn't the building, right? And it doesn't mean that the church militant, you know, we're all shooting. No, 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 no. The church militant, though, means we're fighting. That means we're alive on earth. So the, the believers who are alive on earth, that's the church militant. The church triumphant, that's the phrase that people used to use and still do some. But that's the church. That's the church in heaven. Okay, those who have finished fighting and they've entered into their reward and they're waiting for Jesus to come back to earth and make all things new. The church militant and the church triumphant. So I sort of played on words there, and I, I called today's message the church political. What does it mean to be the church uh, political today? I'm going to ask you about the stories that we tell ourselves. The stories that we tell ourselves. Pay attention to the ads that are coming up. Pay attention to the things your friends or your parents or your kids are saying. Not just which side are they on, but what are they saying? What do they believe about who we are as a people? Listen for what they believe to be true. With that in our minds, let's go to the text today. As we open our Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter is a great book to read along with the Gospel of Mark, which we happen to be going through this whole entire year. Why? Because Mark, who wrote Mark, was a student of Peter, who was really the closest disciple to Jesus. Peter writes the book of 1 Peter to Christians who are struggling Christians in what is now today probably the area of Turkey. So they're in between Israel and Rome. They're kind of right in the middle geographically, both on the map, and they're right in the middle in terms of worldview, in terms of who? Politics. Politics really is what we're going to talk about today. Let's listen to the scriptures and then we'll unpack together. God, would you please bless the reading and the hearing of your word today? May you please focus us in, Lord, on what it is that is most true about who we are 
as individuals, about who we are as a people. And I'm not talking about as a St. Andrew people or as an American people. But I mean who we are as the people of God. Would you please help us to leave this place today with that on our minds and turning that over in our hearts? Would it be so? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. From 1 Peter chapter 2, then, we read this. But you, talking to the church, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We're going to pause right there. And just notice for a second that all of these words are political words. The first thing I want you to write down as we're talking about this today is that all, as a Christian, I am automatically political. I can't escape it. Now, these people didn't live in a 21st century democracy. Far from it. There was no expectation that they'd be able to participate in their government like you and I can as Americans. But nevertheless, Peter uses political language to talk about who they are. Now, for politics, the word, when I say it's political language, I have a special definition, a certain definition of politics in mind for today. So for today, anyways, my definition of politics is that it provides us with an identity and a purpose beyond our biological family. So as soon as you put two families in one room, two biological families in one room together, you have politics. At least that's my contention for us today. As soon as you put, so we have groups of families in the church, so there's going to be church politics. But then we have groups and groups and groups coming together to make states and nations politics, right? But it can be as small as really two families working together. But the thing is it provides identity and purpose. Identity and purpose. That's what politics is going to provide. At least that's how I'm using the word today. Now look at those words that Peter uses as he's talking about who you are, Christians. I'm going to give put three columns up on the screen. Three columns to tell you what those words are. The first is what I just read, and that comes from the NIV translation. Uh, the second, okay, the second is from, um, I, we'll just read them all the way across. Well, the second one, they're all, they all come from the Greek. The, 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 the Greek I'm going to give you is uh, just as I look in my dictionaries and in my uh, resources that I have, I'm trying to give you a really literal de uh, translation of what those words mean, just going straight from Greek to English. And now, this, the Second Testament is a new translation of the Bible. I'm not a, uh, a Greek scholar. I'm just, I, I know enough to be dangerous. I'm not a Greek scholar. This is just me using my dictionaries. Scott McKnight is a Greek scholar. His new translation of the New Testament is helpful as well. So this just helps us understand what these words mean. So in the NIV, chosen people. I, I looked those words up, and I, I came up with the phrase, an elected people group. 
and Scott says chosen family. Less similarities, right? Okay. But the next phrase, royal priesthood. I looked at, to me, the word uh, um, is a kingly language. So I said, oh, this looks like these are kingly priests. You think if they're just priests, you think, oh, that's not political, that's religious. No, no. First of all, priests were political back in the day, but these aren't just priests. He puts the adjective in front of it. They're royal or they're kingly priests. They're political. And, and Scott says they're an imperial priesthood. He likes the word empire. He just uses it throughout his translation. Holy nation, separate ethnicity. Holy means kind of separate, completely distinct, completely other. Separate ethnicity, the word for nation is ethnos. Um, and Scott uh, kind of agreed with me. Devoted ethnic group. God's special possession. I translated that as acclaimed citizenry, and he put up there an acquired people. So these words... Lots and lots of politically charged language in here. And really, I, I don't need to belabor the point any more than I already have. It's just the, the point is that you are political by nature. And there's no escaping that reality. And these people that Peter's writing to, they're pinned between a doomed and hopelessly corrupt theocracy on one side. That's Israel. That's who they got on their left. And then on their right, they have an imperial cult of Rome focused around the worship of one guy, the emperor. And Peter encourages them both. As politically homeless as you might feel, remember who you are. He starts with this identity. Remember who you are. And then he moves to purpose. Then he moves to purpose. Who you are and then your purpose. You are very you're going to be both very different. I'm sorry. You're going to note that both who you are and your purpose are very different from what either the Romans on your right or the Jews on your left are going to tell you about reality. And I told you today's lesson is going to be a little bit pokey. This is probably the first pokey part. And it is, I want you to write it down. Being a Christian trumps every other marker of identity. Being a Christian trumps every other marker of identity. You probably don't believe that, at least not deep down. And the, let me say, the less time you've been a Christian, probably the harder it is for you to believe that, but not necessarily. Your belonging to God, to the family of God, is more important than your belonging to the family that shares your last name. Your belonging to God, it's more real than that. Your belonging to the people of God is more fundamental than your belonging to Indiana, or DeKalb County, or Auburn, your identity as a Christian is more fundamental to who you are than your ethnic group, your skin color, your sexuality, or your gender identity, or your political party, your identity as a 
member of God's family is who you are. It doesn't mean that those other things don't matter. They do. But the hard thing for us to hear and the hard thing for us to believe and ultimately to start putting flesh on this skeleton, what does it mean, right? Okay, how am I supposed to live now? But the hardest thing is your identity as the people of God is the most important thing about you. How do we go from the theoretical then to the practical? And how does this, this reality play out in our lives? I'll try an example. I'll try an analogy on you. You can let me know if it works or not. I'm sure you will. I am a big Bengals fan, Cincinnati Bengals. All my life, I've loved the Cincinnati Bengals, and I have never had a friend or a family member who has shared this love with me. I have been alone. Growing up in Northwest Ohio, both the Browns and the Lions were closer. I went to high school and then college as well with another guy from my high school. You might have heard of him. His name's Ben Roethlisberger. Uh, so after college, he got drafted by the Pittsburgh Steelers. And so everybody in my hometown went that direction. And they were surprised when I didn't. And I was like, what? Are you kidding me? Of course I'm not going to. Anyways, so after college, I left, and I went to serve in the Navy. I got stationed in Italy. No Bengals fans. Believe it or not, no Bengals fans in Italy. And then I went to Seattle, and again, zero. Nope, none out there. Finally, after moving to Indiana, I was finally able to go to a few Bengals home games. I've been able to go to a few of them. Uh, and doing that was amazing. It was like I was finally at home. It felt amazing to be with 70,000 strangers who loved the Bengals as much as I did, who knew their history, who knew the players of today and of yesteryear as well. Let me tell you, though, a couple of things that I that I noticed at uh, one game against the Browns. We hate the Browns as Bengals fans. We were in the upper decks, and there were these two guys in Browns jerseys, and they were drunk as skunks, and they were screaming profanities. And you know what I thought in the moment? Typical. <laughs> Typical. The whole way home, I'm thinking about those guys, and I'm just thinking, what do you expect? They're from Cleveland. <laughs> You're laughing. You can tell what I'm getting at here, why I said that. I, we, we come by it honestly, as Cincinnati Bengals fans. Uh, we don't have much respect for those in Cleveland. Go ahead and play the clip. This is from, well, hold on a sec. Hold on a sec. A little bit of background. This is from the, uh, the 90s, and um, there had just been, the week before, a big kerfluffle somewhere in the NFL with snowballs, probably Buffalo, Cleveland or Buffalo, probably, those are the crazy, throwing snowballs at the referees, and the game had to be paused and everything. So this is the week after that happened, and now they're in, this is a game in Cincinnati, uh, and the fans are 
the referees in Cincinnati, they're never fair. They're never. They just forget how to do their jobs when they come to Cincinnati, I swear. But they, uh, the fans were letting the referees know that they weren't doing their jobs very well with snowballs. And so the head coach at the time has a message for the fans. Go ahead now. Will the next person that sees anybody throw anything onto this field, point them out, or get them out of here. You don't live in Cleveland. You live in Cincinnati. Sam Weish, that's a classic. Every Bengals fan knows about that clip. Sam Weish, you don't live in Cleveland. You live in Cincinnati. Act like it, right? So that's how I thought about the Cleveland fans. Now, before and after the game, I'm walking through the tailgate section and everything, and I see guys dressed in Bengals outfits, Bengals gear. And guess what they're doing? A lot of them is drunk as skunks. A lot of them are uttering obscenities, smoking dope and chugging beer keg, keg stands and everything like that. Guess what I thought about them? No, 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 that, that's, it's not time, it's not time for that picture yet. No, 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 it's not time for that picture yet. No, 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 we're not there yet. Those guys weren't drunk as skunks. What I thought about them was something like this. Oh, come on, you guys. You know you shouldn't be doing that. Come on, guys. They're probably good people. They're just getting a little carried away. Why did I think that about them? They're on my team. They're on my team. So then I had this experience, and now you can put the picture of Austin up. I got to go to a Bengals game with my friend Austin, who is a 49ers fan. And we got to go to a game where they played the San Francisco 49ers. We sat next to each other the whole game, talking the ins and outs, and we were cheering for completely different outcomes. My team, uh, his team, rather, won. I believe it was in overtime. But something strange happened again. I felt absolutely no desire to punch him in the face. <laughs> Isn't that strange? For, for he was a Niners fan sitting right next to me. See, my identity as Austin's friend easily overshadowed my identity as a Bengals fan. Had I not known Austin, I would have assumed the worst about him. Ugh, typical Bay Area, whatever, right? Snowflake, whatever else you would... I had to come up with some kinds of insults. But I know Austin. He's my friend. And I gave him the benefit of the doubt. Our identity as friends trumps any other sports allegiance. Now, I think, has, do you think that anything like this is happening in our place? But instead of sports teams, it's happening with politics. I see some of you shaking your heads. Whether a person knows Jesus, it's way down on the list of what's important to some of us. Really, what we care about is, 
Do you follow the same people I follow? Do you get your news the same place I get my news? Will you vote the same way I'll vote? That's what is most important to too many Christians these days. Do you tell yourself the same story that I tell myself about DeKalb County, about the United States, and our place in the world? That's an important question to ask, and those are important discussions to have. But that's not the most important thing about us, not by a long shot. Our book of the month this month is, I told you already in the announcements, it's Them by uh, Senator Ben Sass, former Senator Ben Sass. He illustrates how this is going on in our culture today. He, in several places, one of the places that jumps out, he talks about the scandalous story of Kermit Gosnell, the abortion doctor from Philadelphia, who tortured his patients and collected decapitated body parts of aborted fetuses in his fridge, hundreds of them when they found it. And Sass's point in bringing this story up is that you probably never heard of this story because the major news outlets barely covered it. And he says, well, why? Well, it's because reporters are overwhelmingly, uh, they skew to the liberal side and pro-choice. And so they don't get excited about writing stories that might hurt women's access to abortion. Sass quotes Washington Post reporter Megan McArdle honestly reflecting on why she and others didn't report on Gosnell. She says, quote, the truth is that most of us tend to be less interested in sick-making stories if the sick-making was done by, quote, our side, end quote. Now, before you do what I did to those Browns fans at the football game, oh, you typical pro-choice libs, conservatives do the very same thing. Blame McArdle for failing, for failing as a reporter, if you like, and you should. But as a person, she did just what the rest of us tend to do. We assume the best about our team, even when we shouldn't. And we assume the worst about the other team, even when they're right. We need, as Christians, guys... We need to push against this, this team, this our team and their team mentality. The politicians, they need us to be stuck in that way of thinking, but we need to frustrate them because we need to push against that. A pro-Trump, if you'll forgive, forgive uh, the, the, the generalization, the stereotype here. I need a stereotype, though, to make the... Uh, to make the to make the example, a pro-Trump Republican on the golf course and a pink-haired Biden voter at Whole Foods, they, if they both belong to Jesus, they have more in common with one another than the pro-Trump golf buddy's golfing partner and the Biden voter's shopping partner if they don't belong to Jesus. But you have a hard time really believing that, don't you? Because you're human, 
And as humans, we really tend to gravitate towards people who look like us, talk like us, think like us. But Jesus is going to change all that. He's going to challenge those dividing lines that we think are so very important. And that's going to make us uncomfortable. And that you just got to live in that zone. You got to listen to one another, speak your mind, but also listen to people who, especially people who belong to Jesus. That's what I'm really talking about here is Christians and other Christians who are very different politically, especially people who belong to Jesus. Listen to them and hear what they're saying. The challenge for you and me is to think about this, this idea that our identity is first and foremost in Christ. And we need to refuse to erect walls where God has forged bonds of brotherhood. I'm going to continue in the scripture here. Uh, Peter says, he continues by saying, um, you, I'm going to reread what I already read at the beginning actually. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into a wonderful light. Once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. The reason I wanted to repeat that scripture text is because it gets to the other part of politics. Identity and purpose, right? Identity and purpose. This is now the purpose part. What is the purpose of our politics then, Christians? The purpose of our politics is to declare Jesus. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness. Our purpose of our politics is to declare Jesus. Jesus who died for the sins of the world. And Jesus who even now is building his kingdom one citizen at a time. As he calls Americans and Canadians and Cambodians. uh, The prideful businessman. uh, The gossip. The greedy. The anxious. The gay. The lazy. The stubborn. All of them as he calls them all into his family. All of them are equal in the kingdom of God, equal in the sight of God. And all of them are equally adopted into the family of God when they put their faith and their trust in Jesus. He does not require them to change any of those facts about themselves before they come to him, just as I am without one plea. Right? Increasingly, though, increasingly, though, we aren't declaring Jesus. We're worried about our causes more than we're worried about the cause of Christ. We're worried about temporal, political elections more than we are about whether our friends and family know Christ and will be in his kingdom forever with us. Many of us are afraid We don't want to be ostracized by our community, by our friends at school, or our friends, our social friends. Some of us just aren't even out and about, actually. Some of us aren't even rubbing shoulders with people who think or believe differently than we do. Sass, in his book, has this other statistic that's really frightening that we need to think about. I I just read it this week, and I'm not even sure how to unpack it or what to do with it yet. But he says that, uh, according to, to studies, an average retired senior watches 50 hours of television a week. What? Who are we even? When an average retired senior watches 50 hours of television a week, you know how formative that is? How that's changing you? 
We need to be with one another and out in our world. And we need to be declaring Christ with our words and just with our, our deeds. But if we're shut up in our homes where no one can see us and no one can talk to us, we can't declare. We can't declare anything to anybody. Being a Christian trumps every other marker of identity. And our political purpose is to declare Jesus. Now, last thing for today. Because of our intense unity, we're united despite our differences. We're united in Christ. Because of our intense unity and because of our really weird political agenda to declare Christ, it's weird. We're going to look strange. We're going to look really strange to the world. And we're going to look really strange to our families. And we're going to look really strange to other Christians who were taught that church is just something you do on Sunday morning. Or, or who were taught that religion or faith is just something that's personal and that's private. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not who we are. So we're going to look strange. Peter says, dear friends, though, in verse 11, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, you're foreigners, you're exiles. Those are political words, too. As foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter is looking forward to the day Christ comes again. God is coming again. And on that day, the party of the Lamb will be vindicated. The party of the Lamb will be vindicated. So in this world, we might feel politically homeless. That's not a bug. That's a feature of Christianity. And the more our country casts off the facade of Christianity, the more our country stops pretending. We're not pretending anymore to be a Christian nation. We're just getting rid of that. We don't need that anymore. The more our country stops pretending to be Christian, guess what? The more our political parties are going to stop even pretending to have true Christian values. This is normal. This is normal. We need to be ready for this. And we need to be reminded that as Peter reminds these people that he's writing to, that you are part of the biggest, truest, most powerful super PAC in the whole entire world. And that's powerful, and that's comforting. And you're now, because of that, you are now able to live a life here, locally, such that when Christ comes, when his kingdom comes, you will be vindicated. What's that mean that you will be vindicated? Here's what that means. Everybody else who didn't listen to you, everybody else who didn't believe uh, the scriptures, who didn't follow Jesus, who didn't give their lives to Jesus, they're going to see when God's kingdom comes and when Jesus comes in the flesh, they're going to see, oh my goodness, those people who gave away their money, they were the right ones. Those people who didn't sleep around, they won't, we made fun of them, they were the ones who were true and beautiful. They were the ones who knew what was right. Those people who worshipped God and not themselves or what they could buy or what they could gain, those people are eternal people. Wow, I see it now. And some people will give glory to God on that day because they'll see what you, how you lived. And they'll say, ah, it all makes sense now. It all makes sense now. You will be vindicated. So now in verse 13, Peter says, therefore, submit 
yourselves. For the Lord's sake, to every human authority, whether the emperor as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but not do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. If you know your identity is in Christ, your purpose is to declare Jesus, and that you will be successful in the end, you are ready to love God's people, right? The family of believers. And love, that's not just a mushy feeling. Love means sacrifice for them, live for them. Love the family of believers. You are ready to fear God, respect him, have all, hold him in awe, you ever been to Washington, D.C.? You hold all oh, the monuments, all. Oh, yeah, they're cool, but they ain't nothing compared to God. Make sure you hold God in awe and honor the empire, emperor. Honor those who, for just a moment, have political authority over you. You're free also to critique the emperor without disrespecting him. You're free to disagree with each other in this room, as we will. You're free to disagree with one another in this room about temporary things without worrying the thread of our bonds will be broken, without worrying that we'll have to divorce one another or go separate ways or shake the dust off and not have anything to do with anybody. We're free. We're free because we're God's slaves. We're free to do all this. Let's go to the table. Pray with me.